For the next few episodes, we'll be focusing on the period of the Judges, detailed in the Old Testament book by the same name. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. The book of Judges sketches out the history of God's chosen people, the Israelites, after they took possession of the Promised Land, which is also known as the Land of Canaan. Israel's leader at that time was Joshua, who had succeeded Moses. From Joshua's death until the time of Samuel the prophet is known as the period of the Judges. Samuel, by the way, was the prophet during the reigns of King Saul and King David. In terms of history, the period of the Judges extended from about 1350 B.C. to about 1050 B.C., approximately 300 years. Now, I should also mention that Bible scholars don't always agree on dates and time frames, including these dates. So just think of the period of the Judges as being from the time of Joshua until the time of the prophet Samuel. During these three centuries, there were no royal rulers in Israel. Based upon the covenant that the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai and reaffirmed to Joshua, every tribe, clan, and family were to be responsible themselves for remaining faithful to the Lord's covenant. Every Israelite pledged allegiance to the Lord and to the nation when they went to the tabernacle for designated feasts and sacrifices. During the period of the Judges, The tabernacle was located in the town of Shiloh. Shiloh was somewhat centrally located among the twelve tribes, a town located in the hill country of the tribe of Ephraim. The tabernacle remained in Shiloh throughout the period of the Judges. Sadly, as the book of Judges reveals, God's Old Testament people were not faithful to the Lord or His covenant. Time and time again, the nation abandoned the worship of the Lord in order to chase after other gods. The last verse in the book of Judges summed up the spirit of the times, or, as a German philosopher might say, the nation's zeitgeist. Here it is. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The book of Judges is a collection of short stories. The book begins with an account chronicling how successful and yet how unsuccessful the twelve tribes were at taking possession of the promised land. Although the Lord wanted his people to take full possession of the land previously occupied by the Canaanite people, they didn't always accomplish what the Lord had instructed them to do. They allowed foreigners to live among them instead of driving them out. This would cause them problems in the years and decades to come. After this opening historical recap in the book, we next read about the individual stories of 12 judges. Now, why 12 judges? Well, if you want to learn more about the significance of the number 12 in the Bible, 
I have an episode on the number 12 in my podcast series called By the Numbers. If you're interested, check it out. Maybe this is a good place to pause and make a comment about the word judges. When we think of a judge, what comes to mind? The most common English usage of a noun judge is someone who administers justice in a court of law. But the Old Testament judges didn't wear black robes, nor did they sit in a courtroom. But they did administer justice, the Lord's justice. They were leaders of the people and sometimes described as deliverers or warriors. They were each called by the Lord to deliver the nation of Israel from the hand of a foreign oppressor. The oppressors were from various nations that bordered the land of Israel. In the book of Judges, we see a pattern, or we could say a historical cycle, that developed in the nation of Israel over the course of decades. In the book of Judges, there are seven of these cycles in which the twelve judges served. The number seven also has significance in the Bible, and by the way, I've got a podcast episode on this number as well. So what did the pattern or cycle look like? Well, there were four phases in each of these cycles. First, there was rest. For example, after Joshua led the twelve tribes to take possession of the promised land, there was a period of rest and peace. But eventually, after Joshua died, the people started to backslide spiritually. They turned away from the Lord and turned toward the countless idols of the nations around them. Now, this happened frequently because the people of Israel intermarried with the idol-worshiping peoples whom they did not drive out from the promised land. The second phase in the cycle is rebellion. So we have rest, followed by a period of rebellion. The rebellion phase is most often described with these words, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because of Israel's rebellion, the Lord then allowed a neighboring nation to oppress the Israelites and rule over them, sometimes for years and even decades. After this foreign oppression and rule, eventually the people would cry out to the Lord for deliverance. The Lord would hear their cries and then would send a rescuer, a deliverer, a judge. So the four phases in each of these cycles were rest, when there was a strong leader, rebellion against the Lord after the leader died, then oppression and rule by a nearby nation, and finally rescue. Got that? Let me say it one more time. Rest, rebellion, rule, and rescue. It's a pattern that is repeated in each of the seven cycles. The first judge was a man by the name of Othniel. While Joshua was alive, Israel enjoyed a period of rest and peace. But when Joshua died, the people rebelled against the Lord, did evil in his eyes, by worshiping the Baals and the Asherahs. Baal was the Canaanite god of rain, wind, and fertility. Because the land of Canaan, which the Israelites now occupied, depended on rain to grow crops, Baal was the top dog among the Canaanite people. Dog is God, little g, spelled backwards. Asherah was another popular deity in Canaan. She was the goddess of motherhood and fertility. 
Asherah was either Baal's mother, his lover, or both. The two of them would mate with the result that the rainy season would come and bring an end to the dry season according to the Canaanite religion. Now, why in the world would the Israelites be constantly tempted to worship Baal and Asherah? Well, one of the most common rituals in worshiping Baal and Asherah was to have sex with temple prostitutes. These immoral activities were means to inspire Baal and Asherah to do their thing so that they would provide rain. Now, there was more to the worship of Baal than just the sexual aspects. It also included black magic and even child sacrifice. Needless to say, all of these aspects of idol worship were evil in the eyes of the Lord. So because of this idol worship, the Lord gave the Israelites into the hands of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Aram, a nation to the northeast of Israel, also known as the nation of Syria. The Israelites were subject to the rule of Cushan for eight years. As the years went along, the people cried out to the Lord. So the Lord sent Othniel to go to war against Cushan. Othniel defeated him and rescued Israel. What followed was 40 years of rest and peace from the land of Israel until Othniel died. By the way, the Hebrew word for peace that is used here is not the familiar shalom, which was used as a greeting or a blessing. The word for peace here means an absence of war. For 40 years, there was no war in Israel. The first of the seven cycles was complete. Which finally brings us to the judge we want to talk about in this episode. The judge is a man by the name of Ehud, capital E-H-U-D. He is known for assassinating a king. Ehud is the second of the twelve judges. After Othniel died, the book of Judges tells us, Once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon king of Moab, power over Israel. The period of rest and peace came to an end because the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord once again. Now, we're not told specifically what that evil was, but undoubtedly it was idolatry. Eglon, king of Moab, rose to power. And why? Because the Lord gave power to him. Keep that in mind for later. So just a little background on the country of Moab, which was located southeast of Israel on the eastern shores of the Dead Sea. The country of Moab got its name from a person, Moab. Moab was Lot's son. Remember Lot? He was Abraham's nephew who, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and therefore their own family home, he lived with his two daughters in a cave. Now, the daughters hatched a plan one day to get their father drunk so that they could have incestuous sex with him with the goal of getting pregnant in order to keep their family line intact. The older daughter got pregnant and gave birth to a son named Moab. The last time we heard about Moab was when Balak, the then king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. This was in the last year of Moses' life as he was leading the nation of Israel to the doorstep of the promised land. Because the people of Moab were related to the people of Israel, 
the Lord didn't include them in the peoples that were to be conquered when Israel entered the promised land. Anyway, back to the story. Eglon, king of Moab, formed a coalition against Israel. He recruited the Ammonites, who lived east of Israel, and the Amalekites, who lived south of Israel, to join him. Ammon, the father of the Ammonite people, was also a son of Lot, through the incestuous relationship with his younger daughter. Amalek, the father of the Amalekites, was Esau's grandson and the patriarch Jacob's great-nephew. In the Bible, this is the first time that we hear about the Ammonites. But we have heard about the Amalekites before, twice. They first attacked the Israelites after they had left Egypt on their journey to Mount Sinai. The second time they skirmished with the Israelites was in year one of the 40 years in the wilderness. Eglon's coalition attacked Israel and took possession of the city of Palms, which was also known as Jericho, located about five miles west of the Jordan River. Then for 18 years, King Eglon demanded tribute money from the Israelites. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him, Ehud, with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So we meet Ehud. He is the Lord's appointed rescuer for Israel. We're told two things about him. He was left-handed and from the tribe of Benjamin. First, do you know what the name Benjamin means in Hebrew? It means son of the right hand. So we've got a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin, which means the son of the right hand. Think about that. Interesting, don't you think? But what's up with this detail about Ehud being left-handed? I think there are two possibilities. One is that Ehud was a natural lefty. Natural lefties have historically always been in the minority, no matter what the culture or time. Some say they comprise between 5% and 30% of any nation or culture in the history of the world. The other possibility was that he had a physical abnormality with his right hand. You see, the Hebrew expression for left-handedness means restricted as to the right hand. Ehud had some sort of right-handed restriction. Now, when I was a kid, I had a shirt-tail relative about my age, maybe a little older, who was born with one shortened arm and with no hand. Could that have been similar to Ehud's condition? I, I don't know for sure, but it's a possibility. But I am inclined to think that Ehud wasn't a natural lefty because of the events that followed. We're told that Ehud made himself a small double-edged sword, the length of which was a measurement from the elbow to the clenched knuckles of a man's hand. He strapped this sword to his right thigh. For the average person, this would be a sword 16 to 18 inches in length. Now, I'm above average in height, but even so, if I strapped a 16-inch sword to my right thigh, it would definitely extend past my knee. So the question is, did Ehud strap this to his right thigh both above and below the knee so that he wasn't able to bend his right knee, forcing him to walk 
with a limp? I think about these questions because why in the world would King Eglon's bodyguards not do a body search of Ehud before he was allowed in the same room as the king? Did Ehud approach the throne room as a man who was crippled in his right hand and walking with a limp, suggesting that he couldn't possibly be a threat to the king? Or did the guards do a body search? But only on the left side, where most men who were right-handed would carry a weapon. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I'm inclined to think of Ehud planning this ruse of being a weakling with the hope that his murderous intentions would not be found out. At any rate, Ehud entered the king's palace with the tribute carried by some other men. Ehud presented the tribute to King Eglon, who is described here as a very fat man. He was excessively obese. After presenting the tribute, Ehud dismissed the men who had carried in the tribute, and apparently Ehud went with them until they reached Gilgal, which was only a mile or so north of Jericho. At Gilgal, Ehud turned around and went back to the king with the message, I have a secret message for you, O king. A secret message. King Eglon was intrigued by what Ehud had to offer. He was eager to hear this secret message. So the king sent everyone out of the upper room of his summer palace so that only he and Ehud remained. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Now, this is where the details of this assassination get a little graphic. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud didn't pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. You know, this could be made for TV movie on Netflix. Ehud escaped the upper room by going out on the porch, but not before locking the doors to the upper room. When Eglin's servants later found the king dead, Ehud had already escaped. Ehud is headed to the town of Sarayah, located in the hill country of the tribe of Ephraim. There Ehud blew a ram's horn to rally the people of his own tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, as well as the people from the tribe of Ephraim. The lands of Ephraim and Benjamin shared a border. Ehud told the people, Follow me, for the Lord has given Moab your enemy into your hands. Ehud and the Israelites headed east to the fords of the Jordan River that led to Moab. The fords of the Jordan were places in the river where the, they were shallow and allowed people to cross easily. Well, the Israelites didn't allow any of the Moabites to return to Moab after their king was dead, killing about 10,000 Moabites, all described in our English translations as vigorous and strong. But the Hebrew has a different shade of meaning, strong and well-rounded like their king was well-rounded. That day Moab was subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years, the longest peaceful time recorded during the time of the judges. So I wouldn't be surprised if you're questioning whether or not Ehud actually committed a crime. After all, Ehud was called by the Lord to rescue Israel from their enemy, the Moabites. 
As did Othniel, Ehud could have assembled an army and attacked the Moabites at Jericho. Instead, he risked his own life to end the life of the king of Moab. So was Ehud's assassination of King Eglon a crime? Well, it most certainly was a crime, a capital offense from the perspective of the Moabites. But we can also make the case that it wasn't a crime from the perspective of the Lord, who sanctioned it for the rescuing of his chosen people. This event reminds us that not all things are black and white in the Bible. This account is a rather graphic scene in the Bible, but it's also quite insightful. There are a couple of takeaways for us. First and foremost, this is a story about the Lord's love for his people. The Israelites certainly didn't deserve the Lord's love because they were doing what was evil in his eyes. They worshipped the Baals and the Asherahs instead of the Lord. So, in love, God had an enemy of his people oppress Israel and rule over them for 18 years. And why? To lead the nation of Israel to repentance, which they did. So, it should be no surprise to us that God allows things to happen to lead people and even entire nations to repent and turn back to him. Secondly, we see how the Lord used just one man to change the course of a nation in a single day. An entire nation's future changed in a single day. Think of that. That's the power of the God of heaven and earth. That's the power of the God we worship and serve. The story of Ehud is the story of God's love and God's power. True Crimes, Bible Edition. In our next episode, we'll explore the actions of a woman who murdered a general as part of the Lord's deliverance of Israel from another powerful enemy. If you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. And did you know that this podcast, Bible Threads, was recently added to the YouVersion Bible app? The YouVersion Bible app is an incredibly powerful platform to deliver Bible content to people all over the world. Thanks for listening, and God bless.